0: Like I said, if you're here today and you haven't been here, we've been in, this, in a series on the book of Acts. And we have come to a place where we're going to take a review. Now, some may say, man, is this guy ever going to get through the book of Acts? It's going to be a little bit. But we're one quarter, 25% of the way through the book of Acts. Pastor Todd was able to cover a very important topic last week uh, whenever, about Stephen and his stoning. If you didn't get a chance to see that you may want to go watch it. He did a great job I want to repeat that again how fantastic of a job that he did do but we're gonna take a moment today and to really get everybody back on the same page we're gonna review some of what has taken place up until this point so you may if you're a note taker you may want to jot this down and let's give you the highlights and then we're gonna look at what three main takeaways we can have from looking at this first seven chapters Now, I want to take just a moment to help you understand that that when we're trying to learn from the scriptures, this is important because there's little details that we get in specific verses that speak to us in ways that might be individual. There's larger chapters and and, and passages that speak to us as a congregation. But ultimately, you know, this is a piece of literature that was written by Luke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it was a work that was compiled. So we're going to take a moment and just kind of review what this 25 first, first seven chapters was about and then make a few points about it that I think will help us going forward. So I just put some of these up there on the screen if you want to. The first, in chapter one, we see the, the very beginning, and it, it ends with the Gospels. The Gospel narratives were Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you remember from your Bible schools or your vacation Bible schools, and in those stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's there's written the narrative of Jesus' life. All of those end with the central uh, thing of, that happens in all of Christianity, which is what? The crucifixion and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So. One writer, Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, he continues on with the second volume, the Acts of the Apostles, and he picks up and he transitions the story. And we see in chapter 1 that some of the highlights are the first thing is the ascension of Jesus. Some of you young people may, what does that mean? Well, that is when Jesus, after he rose from the grave, after he spent some six weeks, the Bible tells us, on the earth doing different things, He ascends into heaven, and it's at this point that we we are given, really, uh, the source material for the Great Commission, which is also included in uh, Matthew. And and it's very important. This is a central part of the development of the story of Acts, okay? So I want to read it. It's in in, uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and Samaria— to the ends of the earth so basically this is jesus is like hey guys i'm leaving but this is what's going to happen you're going to receive power when the holy spirit comes upon you and then you're going to go out and you're going to spread this message everywhere okay so that was whenever they're told this by jesus before he rises up into heaven immediately after that in chapter one very natural normal thing that's when the apostles kind of regroup They reorganize and figure out what we're going to do. They decide to replace Judas because he had been a betrayer. And so you had that story about that. And so this is what happens in Acts chapter 1. When we jump over to Acts chapter 2, we see the introduction of the Holy Spirit in a supernatural way into the world at Pentecost. You see, we oftentimes in today's world, people soak Pentecost with a particular type of church or something of that nature. That's not really the case. Pentecost is a festival that the Jews had, but it's the particular festival that that God chose to reintroduce in a very personal way His Holy Spirit into the world. And we see in that introduction at Pentecost that now the Holy Spirit is indwelling people. You see, beforehand, the Holy Spirit really didn't indwell people maybe in moments he moved in and out he accomplished things through messengers but now he comes upon and indwells people and he empowers them with it with his power also in chapter 2 as a result of this manifestation of God's spirit at Pentecost Peter preaches a very dramatic sermon we talked about that and over 3000 people came to Christ, who were Jewish, and from all over the place, they came to Christ at at this one particular time. So now we see the progression. Jesus ascends to heaven. He tells the disciples, hey, this is what you're going to do. They begin to try to figure out how to do that. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. They're empowered and boldened to do it. And so now it's happening. 3,000 people come to know Christ. Also in chapter 2, further miraculous manifestations of the Spirit start to take place as people are healed. Things begin to happen things that are outside of the normal and the natural we see that in chapter 2 as a result of this We know in chapter 2 that what all the believers are are getting encouraged. They're growing. They're meeting together They're sharing and they're doing all these types of things And so this is as it's progressing the writer is showing us Hey, this is what happened when the church started move on to chapter 3 There's a little side note that happens. They give us a story about Peter. This is Peter and John where he heals the beggar. Remember we talked about that? The beggar wanted to know he wanted some money. Peter said, I don't have money. I don't have silver and gold, but I do have this. Tells the guy to get up. Of course, whenever Peter heals the man, he creates a little bit of stir because it's at the temple. He takes that opportunity to preach to the crowd and tell everybody that what they did when they were shouting, crucify him, crucify him, was they, they, they crucified the Son of God. This did not go over well, and so that leads us to chapter 4, where we have the record as a result of his preaching there at the temple, he and John are imprisoned overnight. We talked about that, and if you have any interest in getting more details on this, I believe that all the sermons are archived online, and you can go back and see those if you'd like. All right, of course, they can't keep them in prison forever, so as part of chapter 4 unfolds, they are before the high council. So now, this is the first incident where Peter and John are before the high council, which is called the Sanhedrin. Earlier in the Gospels, we find that this was the particular group of people who did what? What? They are the ones who condemned Jesus. Now, I hadn't talked a whole lot about this, but just to kind of give you a picture, I was thinking about this. I probably should have done this before, but the Sanhedrin was made up of 71 religious leaders, and they came from those different parties that I was telling you about. They were they were voted upon by these group of people, and they gathered in a place called the Hall of the Hewn Stone. I believe is the best translation for it. And in this particular place. It was a semicircle, by a little oblong semicircle. They have depictions of this in Jewish literature. All right. It was like elevated, kind of like choir loss, you know, like you know how that choir people stand in different rows or if they're taking a picture so that everyone could see down. So it was like a semicircle with all these 71 people around, and in the center was a higher chair, and that's where the high priest Caiaphas, who we've been introduced, sits. And then right in the center of the semicircle sits the person who's accused. And then in the back of the semicircle, like kind of in the audience, that's where all of the disciples of the 71 leaders, like the people that they were, their students, okay? And in the process, the way it worked was those students could speak up on behalf of the accused and like the 71 were not only, they were the accusers and the judge and then they would bring in witnesses and things of that nature. So now, well, this is the first instance, In chapter 4 where Peter and John come before the Jewish high priest and the council in this particular thing they share boldly right and what happens they if you remember in chapter 4 they really were upset with Peter and John but they couldn't act against them really because there was a large crowd of people who remembered that the guy who was crippled had been crippled all his life and so the Jewish leaders did not want to enrage the people because had they condemned Peter and John right then everyone would have known they didn't really care about the fact that it was healing it was about some other agenda so they basically told him what don't don't preach in his name get out of here don't come back all right now as a result of that Peter and John remember they go back and they tell the believers that, man, this is all, we're doing this, and they all get even bolder, and they begin to share the message more and more as they go around. <clears throat> and then, of course, in, in Acts chapter 4, towards the end, we really get the explanation of how connected these believers are together. Remember, this is where they're all putting all their resources together. They're they're selling land, they're doing that. And you know, I think oftentimes we think of that as so much different in a lot of ways. That's still what the church does. When we all give on Sunday, okay? When we when we bring our tithes and our offerings, what we're doing is we're all sharing out of our abundance to pool that resource together so that we can accomplish a mission that's greater maybe than what we might be able to do individually, which is why we, you know, have the pictures of the churches that we build, or we send money to the boys' home, or do different things like that. So now, I'm not saying that we're all making the same sacrifices that they did, but that's the concept. That's the reason, the basis for why Christians do what they do and why they give and they collectively take up their resources to help based on this particular principle. So, also in chapter 4, one little side note because he's a major player later, we are introduced to a man named Barnabas. He's going to come up again later. And if you remember back from chapter 4, his introduction is the fact that he had something of high value. He sold it, he brought it to the apostles, so we know this much about him. Now, real quick, I'm moving through this fast, right? Some of you are going, man, you could have done this and saved us the last eight weeks. But, um, you know, then you wouldn't have got all those other good details, right? So chapter 5, there's a little side note story here about Ananias and Sapphira. You remember them? They're the ones who wanted to get the credit for doing all the good, but didn't really want to do the good. And so as a result, judgment fell upon them. They both died. As a result of that, a lot of awe and wonder is involved in the local church at this point. Peter and John continue in chapter 5, their healing ministry. All these people are being healed that they go and talk to, that they pray for, different things like that. As a result of all of that, guess what happens? Where do they end back up? They end up back in front of the high council again because, you know, They're not going away. The high council's not really accepting them. So they end up back before the high council again. And now they they have a conflict and they have another episode. This time they're flogged, they're let go or whatever. And they go back and they actually rejoice, it says in chapter 5, that they were called worthy to suffer and to be beaten for the cause of Christ. They are not deterred, they continue. So at this point, we've got two incidences where... Peter and John, who are the leaders, they're the de facto leaders of this new local church. When I say new church, it's, then it's all one church, okay? I think someone misunderstood me uh, whenever I, was, I said that one time. It's new in the sense that it's only emerging as this is the church as it comes out of the Jewish tradition, all right? So the high council, you know, doesn't know how to deal with this problem. This is a problem, and it doesn't seem to be going away, The problem didn't start with Peter and John. It started with who? It started with Jesus. And it's like a bad piece of meat. The more you chew on it, the bigger it grows. The bigger and problem is, look, what's happening here is, maybe that wasn't the best analogy for some, I think that, but again, you got the point. It just doesn't go away, right? It's not going away. And that's the way problems are. Until you handle them truthfully, they just don't go away. And these folks are not going away. The high council wants it to go away, but it won't go away. They keep telling them, hey, don't do this anymore. That's not going to happen. So what happens here? We see in chapter 6 that as a result of this, the growing church is getting bigger, bigger, bigger. Like anything that grows, you remember a Sunday a few weeks back? As when things start growing, you start having problems. That happens in everything. Starts facing some challenges. As a result, to answer those challenges, they appoint deacons. Now, we didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about that, but the deacons were the first real officers appointed in the church, and they had a role outside of the apostles to do what? To serve, to minister, to help. So those deacons were introduced in chapter 6. One of those deacons' name was Stephen, and then Stephen, we find out in chapter 6, is arrested, and he's brought on trial for doing God's work. And Todd talked a whole lot about that last week. As he went into 7, chapter 7 of Acts, what happens? Stephen, he's falsely accused, and he's falsely brought to trial. As a result of that, now what's what happens. He's brought to, to address who? The high council. So now the third time that someone has been brought before the high council, the first two times it was Peter and John, now it is Stephen who is before the Sanhedrin or the High Council. When he's there, and I think Todd talked a little bit about this last week, he really does challenge them. They they ask him a question about, are these accusations true? But he doesn't really defend himself. He's not looking to even answer their charges. He basically lays out for them the story of God's movement among his people. He starts with Abraham who's the patriarchal father he then goes to joseph and after joseph he talks about moses who's the lawgiver and then after that he talks about david and solomon so you see what he's doing here he's hitting the entire spectrum of the important people to them and they believe that they are the manifested spokesman from god to speak on the behalf of all of these patriarchal fathers on all of, of the Mosaic law, they, they feel, now remember, they're sitting in a big semicircle. They're all well dressed. This is a very formal affair. This is a very real, this is a very real trial. They're here, and here stands Stephen, who's not even really a learned man. He's just one of these disciples, and he lays out for them through all these things, and then he gets to the end, and he basically lays out a condemnation of them which is the first time this has happened. You remember Jesus never really answered them. They wanted him to challenge. They wanted to press him, but what did he do? He really didn't answer them. He just asked them back questions. Peter and John, they talked a little bit about it, but Stephen here, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, we know this to be the case because the records say his face was shining like, a, like an angel, but look at his reply in verse 51. After laying out all of these things, he says to this high council, he's sitting in the middle, high priest is in the high chair, all of them are standing around there, all their students are behind him, the false witnesses have come in, and he stands up in boldness and says, you stubborn people, you are heathen at heart. Now you lose a little something here because the real translation there is basically you're, a gen- you're worse than a Gentile which we know how the Jews felt about them. So basically what he says is, you're nothing more than a Gentile really in your heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. This this is not going over well at all in this particular group of people. He says, name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. So at this particular point, now it becomes virtually impossible for the new Christian church to coexist with the religious institution of Judaism because a deacon who's an appointed member and leader in the church stands before the Sanhedrin which is their ruling governing body, and he basically just calls them out in public, and it's absolutely laid out there for them. We saw in the text that they're so infuriated by it that they gnash their teeth. They're so upset. They're just, I mean, and imagine if some, when someone is called out in the middle of public and whatever and basically throwing everything that you think you believe. I'm telling you, you you're just, you're wrong. It's a very huge moment in the particular story. Now, that's not the only thing that happens as a result of that. They, they're not just upset. They're upset to the point that they do what? They're like, nope. We, I mean, you can only imagine. I'm just speculating, but their thoughts. Right, we, 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 you know, Jesus was a problem. You know, um, they say he rose again and all that. These other guys are a problem. They're going around doing good things, but this guy here, he's come right to our face and he's saying that we're basically the up. Uh, of the devil. So they just in anger do what? They r- grab him up, they take him outside of the city, and they do what? They stone him, which is a very brutal form of death. It was reserved really for some of the worst kinds of things. It was, it was, it was whenever they just take big stones and just beat them to death. I mean, and I can imagine a person being beat to death with stones is not quiet. It's not a scene where, hey, everybody's happy. No, this is a public humiliation. This is a public demonstration of our power as the Sanhedrin saying, look, if you cross us, if you go against us, this is what may happen to you. It's not going to be nice. It's not going to be fun. It's going to be very, very bad. Of course, even in that, Acts tells us what? That while they were doing it, he stayed focused on God, and he's looking up into heaven, and he even does What? He really kind of mimics Jesus when he says to him, Father, don't hold this against him. I mean, you could just pause there for a minute and go, wow. I mean, here's a guy there that being literally having stones thrown through his body. I can't even imagine what a death like that would be like. You know what I'm saying? And yet, in in that moment, he's like, God, don't hold this against him. I like what Todd said. Sometimes I think we're all in the category like we want people to get what they deserve, don't we? Like we kind of want them to get theirs. Well, get them, God, because they did this to me. But what if we got to the point like Stephen where we could say, God, don't give them what they deserve. Don't hold it against them. Help them. Very, very powerful testimony about Stephen. And of course, in that moment, now we see a transition. All right? Now, you got to remember, some of you may not know this, but whenever the book of Acts was written, all the number, verse numbers, and the chapter numbers, that wasn't in there. Okay, that's been added later. And so sometimes I think maybe there's a little better way to do it. There's nothing inspired about the numbers. All right, so if you look at chapter 8, verse 1, I kind of feel like it, it is a transition, but it goes as much with the first seven chapters as it does introducing us to what happens next because we see there the introduction of really the next major character in the story which is Saul of Tarsus who later becomes Paul and look what we find out about him we know that at the stoning they gave their coats I mean <laughs> this is a crazy scene when you think about it I mean they're fixing to get down to serious business I mean we're fixing to stone this dude to death it may take a lot of throws we don't want to get hot we don't want to get blood on our coats I mean we got to get ready to, for, for really to work here so they give their coats to this guy named Saul. And we find in 8, chapter 1, that Saul was one of the witnesses. And look what it says here. Wanted to make The Bible wants us to know he wasn't just like kind of got swept along with the crowd. It says what? He agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. Like he wasn't just kind of caught up in the moment, enraged. No, Saul held the coats and watched while they stoned the man to death The man whose face shone like an angel and who said, Father, forgive him. And he completely agreed with the killing. That's important because that's going to come up again later. And it's important to remember that who you were doesn't mean that's who you always have to be. This is a guy who is not a good person. He is as, 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 as broken as they come, motivated for religious zeal to do something terrible. But he has a major transformation, and we're going to see that later. But as a result of this event, okay, what happens? A great wave of persecution begins that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. Now, you can imagine. Remember back. This is why we're reviewing. The first two times that Peter and John went to the high council, what happened? I mean, one, of them, one time they got a little flogging, but both, basically they came out after that, and everybody was still excited and happy to continue spreading the message. Everybody's not as easygoing and happy-go-lucky after this particular meeting with the Sanhedrin because what? I mean, he's dead. And I'm sure that somebody said, whoa, this, ain't, this, is, this is for real. I mean, they killed him. And they didn't just kill him like with a sword, they beat him to death with stones. And so as a result of this great wave of persecution, what we see happening is now the more antagonistic group of Jews, the zealous Jews, realize that, hey, we cannot take a passive approach to all of these quote-unquote Christians. Now, I hesitate to use that word because they weren't even called Christians yet. All right? They were still at this point called people of the way or people who followed the Nazarene. It wasn't until later at the church at Antioch that they even had the name Christians. So we might even not even be doing the, the right communication, but, but we know them to be Christians. And so the people who were very zealous, the Saul's of the world and all these other people are like, we can't just allow this group of people to infiltrate and destroy our belief system. We've got to eradicate them. We've got to get rid of them. Course, there's some interesting things that we could point out there. And I've said this before, but we have to always be cautious. Many times we can do some of the very worst things and believe we're doing it for the right reason. And do it with tremendous zeal. We have to make sure that we're doing the right things. We can't just be doing them enthusiastically or think that it's good and right. we got to constantly make sure and test our beliefs and our actions against the scriptures so that we know, hey, we're doing the right things, not just motivated to do something great. Saul thought he was doing something great, but he was on the wrong, wrong side. How sad would it be to know that I did a lot of stuff, and I mean, I did it zealously, and I was excited about it and passionate about it, but I was doing the wrong thing not a good plan. You no, know, we got we to make sure. But these folks at this particular time decided that they weren't going to let this few thousand people shake up the apple cart and mess up everything in Jerusalem, all right? So now this huge wave of persecution happens, and then we see some other things that we're going to see that happen. Now, I want to jump to, because this is the first seven chapters in the book of Acts. This brings us up to the point that we are today. I want us to go back and listen to what Jesus said at his ascension, okay? He says what? He tells them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem. See, the first seven chapters are literally the expression of that prophetic utterance by Jesus, All right, so through these first seven chapters, they have become the witnesses for Jesus in Jerusalem. And as a result, a few thousand people have come to know Christ and have believed in him. Probably, if history gives us any indication, probably some of even those 71 who were in the Sanhedrin believed. But now we've got this this, this problem. And up until this point, man, things have been good. People have been buying and selling. They've been sharing. Miraculous things have happened. But now things have taken a downturn in Jerusalem because they're fixing to bring the full force and pressure of the government and all the religious institutions upon them to stop this. And so if you were at the Jerusalem church, maybe you were a believer, you might look at that and you might go, this is a terrible thing. How could this happen? Why would God let this happen? God's, God's not working on my behalf. God's not, whatever, you might say a number of things. And in some regards, those things might be true. It might be a terrible thing. I don't really think that you can spin a stoning any other way than bad. I mean, it's, that's a painful, terrible ordeal. But God takes bad and does what? He makes good out of it. So now what happens is... What seems to be really bad, okay, this wave of persecution that's now falling upon the Jerusalem church, what does it do? Go back to chapter 1 of verse 8 there for me, Brendan, go back up a slide. It sweeps over the church in Jerusalem. Go up one slide for me. And so what happens as a result of it? All the believers, except for the apostles, which we know the apostles to be the twelve, and probably some of their cohort, all the rest of them do what? As a result of this wave of persecution, what do they do? They get out of Dodge. And they're like, wait a minute, we can't stay here, so where do they go? They go and scatter throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Not necessarily because they wanted to, because it was pretty cool being there in Jerusalem. Peter and John were healing people. Everybody was doing good. Things was awesome and it was going like that. And look, what do we normally do when things are awesome? We want to just sit down and all gather together. I mean, we want to pull up a chair and we want everything to be awesome together until something bad happens. And in this case, something bad happens. It's bad, it's not good, it's painful, but what happens as a result of it? Go to the next slide, Brendan. The fulfillment of the next step in the Great Commission, which is what? Now you're going to be my witnesses where? Throughout Judea and in Samaria. What's taken place? The stoning of Stephen has been the instigating factor, the thing that's caused what Jesus said to come true. Now just get your mind wrapped around that. Jesus said that several months, maybe even a year before that. They had no idea how it was going to take place. They certainly didn't know that it was going to come about because of a stoning or something really bad. But something really bad ultimately does what? Causes something good. We're going to get back to that, but that's very, very important. So this is where we find ourselves at the end of Acts chapter 7. The first 25% of the book, as recorded by the Apostle Luke, or as according to Dr. Luke, I guess would be a better way to say it, all right, this is where we are. We're going to continue on over the next several weeks, probably the next several months, looking at what happens, but what are the three takeaways, main takeaways, that you and I can walk away from about Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 7, okay, now, certainly, we've preached, what, 6, eight, nine, 10, 12 sermons, so there's a lot more than this. But I think all of them will point to these three takeaways, okay? Number one, God has a plan. You don't have to worry about whether God's got a plan. You see, there are thousands upon thousands of scenarios made by millions upon billions of people happening all the time, Okay? And all of these are variables that are absolutely impacted by human free will. This one and that one and all of these different scenarios create literally billions of outcomes. But somehow God has found a way in his sovereignty to execute his plan through all of these different variables. That should give you and I tremendous hope. The problem is, we want to do what? We want to rely on our own plan. Or we want to give in to fear and doubt that somebody else's plan is going to go wrong or that somebody's going to institute their plan. And look, you've got to remember God has a plan. He had a plan from the get go. His plan was to see this message go forth. It didn't happen the way they thought it, I'm sure. And listen, His plan's not going to execute in your life in the way that you think it ought to. There's going to be variables created by your bad decisions. There are going to be variables created by the bad decisions of other people. There are going to be variables created by the simple brokenness of this world. And guess what? All of those things can bring pain and heartache and suffering, but guess what? God can thread his plan through all of that. He did it with the church, and he wants to do it with you and I. Number two, God uses people. Man, God uses people to accomplish his plan. Don't fall into the trap of thinking, man, God's going to do this, and it's something out there that's, that's nebulous. Look, God uses people to accomplish the plan. Like, you're the plan. I mean, get, get your mind wrapped around that. It's like it's not happening out there in a vacuum or in a bubble. You know, we are his hands and his feet. It's not, it's not the other guy. It's people. You and I want and ought to be used by God. I think it's Matthew West. I don't, don't quote me on this for sure, but it's a song, and it's a very interesting song. He says, you know, I, I was, he's, he's kind of telling a story as he's thinking to himself, and he says, I looked out there at the world, and there was all these problems. I looked out there, and there was all these orphans. I looked out there, and there was hungry people. I looked out there, and there was all this other stuff, this bad stuff. And I looked up at God, and I was like, God, why, why is this happening? What, what, what are you going to do about it? What, is, what are you going to do about it, God? And the, the song says what? I did something about it. I created you. And you're like, oh. All right, so, so he wants to use me to solve the problem. He wants to use you to solve the problem. Look, if you're watching this online or if you're here and you're like, man, you know, this is not according to God's plan. It's very likely that there are many things that are not going according to God's plan in your life for all those reasons we listed. But maybe instead of just sitting there saying, why me? Why this? Why that? Why don't you say, God, how can I be a part of making that plan a reality? Look. So many people, and I love when Todd says this. We talk about this a lot in a lot of realms. It's like everybody wants to point out the problems instead of what? Being part of a solution. Figure out how to be a part of God's solution because he wants to use you. Now, he does on occasion use things as silly as jackasses. And he uses nature. And he does that. But the primary tool in his toolbox is what? People. People. So whenever you consider God's plan and you trust in his plan, remember that he wants to use you and the other people around you who are a part of his church to accomplish that plan. That's what he did with really ordinary people, fishermen. There wasn't anything special about Peter and John and all these guys. They were just ordinary people. That was one of the reasons the Sanhedrin and none of the Jewish people accepted them, because they didn't have enough status They didn't have enough education. They weren't from an important enough family. But none of that mattered to God because God was going to demonstrate the third thing, His power through people to accomplish the plan. You know, God gives people the power to accomplish His plan if they receive it. Now, you can have all the power in the world at your disposal, but if you don't use it, doesn't do you anything. You know, you can sit in a vehicle. You can sit in a race car that will go 200 miles an hour. But if you don't turn it on and get in it and go and press the gas, what happens? You might as well just be sitting on a horse that won't move or sitting on a wagon that's got no motor. You've got to use the power that God gives you. We've talked about that, and we're going to see more and more through the book of Acts. But God has given us, the Bible says, a spirit of power to accomplish his will. In your life today, maybe you need to just trust God's plan. Have you let the distractions of this world kind of sidetrack you? And there's a lot of them. Man, they're everywhere. They're from within and they're from without. But maybe you need today to say, look, I'm going to trust his plan because I know he's got one. Maybe you've been sitting back just kind of like, God, when's the plan going to come into action? Maybe it's time to say, look, God, use me. Let me get to be a part of it. Maybe you're discouraged. Life can be discouraging. Things don't happen the way you want them to. The outcomes don't seem to match what you feel are the right inputs. And you can become discouraged. Maybe today you and I need to say, you know what? I'm just going to pause right here and I'm going to ask God to show me his power to overcome this, to help me in this relationship. To help me in this particular thing at work. To help me overcome this that I'm struggling with in my own mind. To help here. I need God's help. One of the great ironies of life is that God wants all of us to work as hard as we can. That's that's, that's a principle that's just thrown throughout the truth. Work as hard as you can and do your best. But here's the problem. Here's the irony. Is not only do you just have to work as hard and do your best, sometimes you become so self-sufficient and relying on yourself that you think it's all about you. And as long as you think you got it, you can't do what? You can't let God take anything. And that's where some people stay. Always hustling, trying to make it happen instead of pausing and saying, God, I need your help. Why don't you help me use these talents and abilities that you've given me instead of me just trying to take them and use them? Let's work together and, look, imagine what great things can happen. You know, the church explodes from here. We're going to see more about it. I encourage you to be here as Jonathan comes to lead us. um, just We're going to do communion today kind of as part of our reflection. You know, the church, after Acts chapter 7, the apostles stay behind. But what happens is all the rest of them, they get scattered out into Judea and Samaria. And now the message of Jesus is going out further and further. And they're taking this message. And the message is so important. You and I need to constantly remind ourselves of the simplicity and the significance of the message. I think Mr. Chuck's got some uh, communion things in the back if you don't have one. You know, one up here. But the significance, obviously, of the message is what? The forgiveness of Jesus Christ, his sacrificial death on the cross to atone for our sins. Super significant, but it's so simple, is to do what? Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, which is ultimately saying to yourself and to others, I can't do this on my own. Can't make it on my own. I need God's help. do life right and the way I need to get his help is to ask him to forgive me for my sins to repent of those sins to be baptized into faith in Christ and when we take this communion today I want you to just thank God for his plan of salvation that included you thankfully he put people in your life who introduced you to that you know some people don't even have that benefit Think about the folks who didn't have the benefit of good people in their life. Family, friends, to share with them about what God did for them. That's why we have to continue to do what? Tell other people, because not everybody knows. And we got to be the ones to tell them. Let's pray. Fathers, we partake of this communion today. And we remember your broken body your shed blood. I pray, Lord, that you would help each of us, whether we're in person or we're watching this online, to allow our hearts to be filled with gratitude for your tremendous sacrifice. Help us, Lord, to sacrifice our own selfish desires and plans at the foot of your cross, to embrace your plan, to embrace your people, the church, to embrace your power through the Holy Spirit, to accomplish all that you would have us individually, collectively. We ask this in the name of Jesus.